1 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Maintain a good conscience, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. In our last business meeting before Sunday school, we voted on our committee rosters for 2023. Now, working with the Committee on Committees to put this roster together is really a deeply encouraging venture. Because as we go through each committee, we look at the incredible wealth of leadership we have in this church, and and we see gifted people who will bring their conscience to bear on the work of the church in each area. And as you go name by name, it's easy to be overwhelmed with the vast collection of capable people with rich varieties of gifts and experiences. I mean, you just look over the list and we have business owners, CPAs, MDs, an MD who used to be a CPA, lawyers, parents, contractors, IT specialists, journalists, writers, consultants, educators, law enforcement, caretakers, salespeople, nurses, and students. We have people who are shaping our community, and not just our church community, but giving leadership to creating the kind of city we dream San Antonio could be. So when we read 1 Peter, we need to keep this in mind. You see, 1 Peter is not written to the professional class. It's not written to Christians in Texas in 2022 necessarily. It's written primarily, or at least at first, to poor Gentile Christians living under the thumb of Rome in the first century. Depending on when one dates the writing of this letter, the suffering referred to in this letter could range from mild abuse and mockery at the hands of the families of these new Christ believers to open official harsh persecution by Roman officials under Emperor Domitian. First Peter is written to a group of Christians who are a minority community living in a Roman world. It seems many of them were women, and perhaps many of these women had husbands who were not Christians. And Peter is trying to help this group imagine themselves making a difference in the world through their faithfulness, but also recognizing the possibilities for actual change in the here and now were few. They had no power. They had few resources. Opportunities were scarce. And so they believed their best witness was to put their heads down and behave. Live lives faithful to the gospel. Live with the hope of Christ in gentle and kind ways so that your gentleness and your kindness might convince others of the goodness of this way of life, the way of Christ. Now, it's disingenuous of us to believe that it is enough for us just to do the same. It's not faithful for us to say we can simply let our behavior speak for itself in every situation. 
We have more power than those first century disciples could ever imagine. Sometimes we have to let our conscience lead. Sometimes we have to speak up. We have more power than the Christians Peter is speaking to in this letter could imagine. It's disingenuous for us to believe that we are doing all we can just by keeping our heads down and behaving like Christians. Keeping out of trouble sometimes is keeping away from the cross, and Jesus calls us to carry that cross. When for sake of conscience we confront our friends or church or government, we are being stewards of conscience, stewards of the Spirit's guidance within us and around us, leading us to seek the life that is life, not just for us, but for all. And as we follow our conscience, we're living into a long Baptist tradition which upholds the principle that historian Buddy Sheridan calls soul freedom or freedom of conscience. He stated that this freedom is the historic Baptist affirmation of the inalienable right and responsibility of every person to deal with God without the imposition of creed, the interference of clergy, or the intervention of civil government. Basically, this means that the individual can be trusted in matters of interpretation and belief. In a way, acting as a steward of conscience is the beginning of stewardship. A disciple without a conscience has no compass for following Christ in the world today. A disciple without conscience can only follow ordinance and dogma into the mediocrity of congregational conservation. Christ calls us to more. 1 John says the Spirit of Christ abides in us. If that's true, what tool but the conscience is Christ using to direct us? And not just our own, we submit to the conscience of our wise guides, of, of the church community, of trusted friends. Sometimes the graven images we make of ourselves and of our lives need to be purified in the fires of our friends' critique. This is the shared role of conscience as it plays out through our calling to be priests to each other. You know, on October 15, 1752, Elizabeth Backus was arrested from her home in Norwich, Massachusetts. She was arrested for not paying the tax for the support of the congregational pastor in her area. Many Baptist women as well as aged men were imprisoned back then for their refusal to conform in many of the colonies, but the worst persecution was in Massachusetts. Bacchus was a 54-year-old widow at the time, and, and she wrote to her son after she got out saying she was there for 13 days and endured much cruel mocking and laughter. She said she was bound when cast into this furnace, yet was loosed and found Jesus in the midst of a furnace with me. Now the prison looked like a palace. Oh, the love flowed out to all mankind, she said. Then I could forgive as I would desire to be forgiven and love my neighbor as myself. Elizabeth's son, Isaac Bacchus, who she wrote to, became one of the leading ministers in Massachusetts during the Revolutionary War, and his ideas about the separation of church and state gave theological grounding to the cause of separation from England. His efforts helped to establish the notion of free exercise of religion, which eventually was incorporated into the First Amendment. All of this because of the witness and conscience of his mother. My old church uh, history professor, Bill Leonard, 
was invited to speak at Baylor back in 2005. And as the story goes, you know, at the time he was the dean of Wake Forest Divinity School, and uh, he was invited to speak on Baptist history at Baylor, of course. And whoever was introducing him that day at the event at Baylor, for some reason, talked about how Baylor was one of the few schools across the country where the light of Baptist heritage still burned strong, while other schools like Brown and Furman and Wake Forest have given up their Baptist heritage. Well, the reason he said that is because Baylor still had connections to a state Baptist convention, while the other schools severed those connections to avoid being entangled with fundamentalists. Well, you can imagine how a Baptist historian reacted to someone saying that his Baptist school wasn't Baptist enough anymore. Leonard refused to give the lecture that he had flown across the country to give until someone apologized. And so he waited in his chair in a packed auditorium until someone apologized to Wake Forest and Furman and Brown. And so after an awkward 10 minutes, the introducer stumbled up through an apology and the lecture continued. But the point had been made in the silence before the lecture ever began. For some, Baptist identity means connection to a Baptist institution or denominational body. For Leonard, Baptist identity is connection to Baptist principles. And the underlying principle is the freedom of conscience. It's that freedom to speak up even when it might be awkward or or put you in a place where you might have to suffer. For it is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer by participating in the perpetuation of wrongdoing or wrongthinking. There are many eager to do that which will benefit themselves. But we are called to be eager to do what is good. For the recipients of this letter from 1 Peter, all they could do was endure and persevere. We too can persevere while we follow our conscience and work for good. We have a lot more resources living in the communications age in what is now a constitutional democracy. Think about it. Individuals have brought about profound change for good in our world. Jody Williams won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1997 for helping to build an international coalition to bring about a treaty outlawing landmines. 120 governments endorsed the treaty. And when she was asked, how did you do that? How did you organize 1,000 different citizens groups and non-governmental organizations on five continents to forge a treaty that was opposed by major powers? She had a brief answer. Email. Cameron Vickery and a group of neighborhood moms started a public education advocacy group for parents a few years ago called Rooted. They tell the stories of what schools are doing and encourage parents to be involved and to, and to vote for policies and leaders who will invest in public education. How did they put together a group like this? Facebook. Today, being stewards of conscience might mean advocacy and civil dialogue. Advocacy just means speaking up for others. Stephen Reeves from Fellowship Southwest and CBF Advocacy says there's a difference between advocacy and lobbying. You lobby on behalf of yourself or your organization, but advocacy is done for someone else's benefit. We have an advocacy ministry team who's been meeting this fall and and educating themselves on how we as Christians can best use our voice for the common good. 
And over the past 10 years or so, CBF churches in Texas and across the Southeast have advocated for limits to payday lenders who entrap vulnerable people in predatory loans. They've, they've supported public education and supported religious liberty for all. And part of how you can use your voice today is voting. Midterms are coming up on November 8. I hear a lot of people frustrated with how polarized our politics are, and that's understandable. But part of the reason they're so polarized is the lack of participation in the primaries. The turnout for the midterm primaries earlier this year was higher than the last six midterm primaries, and yet still less than 18% of registered voters voted. Primaries might be the most effective tool for normalizing politics, if there's such a thing. They are, after all, meant to put forth the best of each party, and too often, because of lack of participation, they simply put forth the person with the most extreme views. Is that reflective of the populace? No. It's reflective of those who vote. So whether you vote or not, you're having your say. There are no leaders in Washington or Austin. They're following your voice, what you demand, and what you allow. Following your conscience is not necessarily a roadmap to victory. It's a compass to the cross, and it's a means of setting us free. Sometimes our conscience will make us feel guilty, and if you have a decent theology of grace, you can be okay with that. Carlisle Marnie once said, Look for the glad rejoicing of learning how guilty you are. He said, The correction of your moral images doesn't mean a beating. It means a freedom to be. Instead of living weighed down by the way the world is now, we can live into the new reality and alternative vision Christ's presence brings about. The Spirit meets us in our weakness and intercedes. The liturgies of despair all around us are a means of submission. Liturgies of despair tell us things never change. They, they say we have no power, no say. That's just how things are. Now, these lies must be resisted. It matters what you do. It matters what you say. It matters what you give and what you don't. It matters who you listen to. It matters how you spend your time. It matters whose voice you amplify. It matters when you are silent. You know, there's a story about there was a beloved professor at a Christian college, and he was in the middle of a lecture in a large lecture hall, and the students were listening intently because he was somebody, he was a good teacher, and they, they genuinely wanted to hear what he had to say. He, he had that kind of moral authority, and everybody just looked up to him. Well, all of a sudden, in the middle of the lecture, the school chaplain busted through the doors of the lecture hall, pulling a young woman along by the arm at his side. And he interrupted the old professor, uh, speaking out, saying, I-, I caught her. I knew it. Says on her Facebook, she's gay. We got her. She's going to get kicked out of school. But since you're the dean of the faculty, you have to approve it. This is her last chance. She's out. Well, when the chaplain's tirade was over and he stood looking at the professor awaiting a response, the classroom moved from, from, you know, awkward silence to audible mumbling and side glances at the, at the young woman, her head hung low at the front of the lecture hall. And the old professor turned to the chalkboard and began writing. At first, the mumbling crowd covered the sounds of the chalk hitting the old board. Then they began to notice what he was writing. 
The chaplain looked up at the board, read it, looked down, released the woman's arm, and left the room in silence. So what did the old professor write on the board? It said this, Who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? Then he looked at the class and he said, Class dismissed. Be ready to speak up for good. There are many who are eager for all the wrong things, but you, us, we should be ready.